Hello, and welcome everyone to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Alec Fenichel, who's Senior Software Architect at TransNexus. Welcome, Alec. Thank you for having me. Very happy you could be here. For those who don't know you, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what it is that you do at TransNexus. Yes, I lead the development and design of our cloud software as a solution product, which does a wide variety of things, Shaken obviously being a big one, but of, of course there's some other things, toll fraud prevention, least cost routing. So I, I'm primarily responsible for the cloud portions. We also have an on-premises that uh, solutions, but sim- that's similar that my colleagues are, are responsible for. All right, cool. And I was, I was in preparation for this, I was looking at your history on LinkedIn and it seemed like um, before you ended up at TransNexus, you had some early internships maybe in what some might consider perhaps cooler areas of technology. It looked like you were working on jet engines and self-driving cars. What, what was that like? Yeah, no, it, it's been an interesting road. Yeah, I spent some time um, with jet engines. You know, that was, it was fun. Man, you know, you think the telephone industry moves slowly. Uh, engines could not be, there's nothing slower, I'll put it that way. So that was, that was a little interesting, but it's slow. And then yeah, cars, they're, they're faster, but still, you know, I found that especially with Shaken, you know, the telephone industry, it's, it's, it's actually surprisingly moving faster. And so that's, I think, kind of what drew me to it and, and it's made it, it's more interesting. That's funny. Yeah, we definitely think about telecoms as being pretty slow moving with all the regulations compared to, you know, the, the pure software world. But yeah, I guess when we see what happened with Boeing a couple of years back with their new plane, it's probably a good idea that the, the engine folks are moving pretty slowly with their developments. Yes. Okay, so as you alluded to, our primary topic for today um, is going to be at Stir Shaken, which I've talked about before. And most recently, I had a chat with Austin Spreadbury from Metaswitch a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago at the time of recording. And we wanted to kind of explore this a bit more because this is an area where TransNexus has played a pretty large role, and particularly with the out-of-band options, those situations where we're looking at how to do stir shaken over networks that aren't SIP. But maybe before we get into that, you mentioned a little bit some of the the other products um, that TransNexus have. I'm curious about kind of your, you know, the product story there, because you were doing other services, you know, application servers, I would consider them things that are part of the voice network before StirShaken even happened. What was the TransNexus business like, you know, before StirShaken became a thing? Yeah, so TransNexus has had a, an interesting history. You know, really it started as as a routing platform and that routing platform integrating with you know, Cisco equipment. And we actually had a solution that, is kind of similar to Shaken in a way that involved signed tokens way back 15, 20 years ago, but it wasn't used, used for cross-carrier communication, a little different use. It was XML-based, not JSON. So we've kind of had some similarity to that. And then when we transitioned into the SIP world with, with that routing product, a lot of our customers started getting toll fraud that really started taking off. And so we added real-time toll fraud detection into that that same platform. And then stir shaking was a natural fit given that history of kind of signed tokens in SIP signaling. We just kind of transitioned to that. So it's it's been an interesting road to get there, but I, in a way it all kind of links together. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you kind of followed customers' needs to an extent in terms of what you did. And then when stir shaking came along, you already had a product which fit well into the network and gave you an opportunity to address you know this new industry requirement. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. 
Ah, good. Excellent. I'll, I'll pay you later. All right. So no, you should pay me. Wait, I'm getting this wrong. Okay. So let's talk about Stir Shaken. Um, and in particular, as I said, we're going to look at Stir Shaken for TDM networks. Now, a few episodes ago when Austin was here, we were talking about uh, some of the new ADIS standards that provide some options for TDM because Stir Shaken as it exists today is only designed um, for SIP networks where you can pass the passport through the SIP signaling. But there are new standards which the ATIS working groups have put out recently, which seek to address this and try to solve the problem of what do we do about stir shaking on TDM networks. And if I'm right, I think you were involved in some of those working groups. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Very. I was the editor of the Out of Band doc document, um, ATIS 1096, and I've worked a fair amount on the ATIS 1095 document as well, especially cool. on version two, which is currently being developed. Oh, I didn't know that. So I'm curious, actually, first of all, just to know what the process of, is like to be involved in these working groups. Like what kind of people or organizations choose to get involved? And having had some experience of being on committees, what on earth does it take to get all of those people to get to a place where they agree on something to the extent that you can publish it? Yeah, you know, it's it's an it's an interesting process. I'll start with, let's say, the first question about, you know, who's on these. It tends to be larger service providers and vendors, not as many smaller service providers. I think that just comes down to, you know, the resources it takes to, to, to attend these meetings all the time and, and smaller providers may not have, but, but yeah, it tends to be to be larger providers as well as, as vendors. And the process it's, it's, you know, the, the summary of, of the way everyone describes it is it's contribution trip. So if you have an interest in something, then you submit a contribution and people, you know, certainly are very critical of, of contributions in, in trying to make them better. But if you're interested in moving something forward, then people tend to try to make it as good as possible, but in a way help you move it forward. ADIS standards uh, are voluntary. So it's not like if a standard is published, that means everybody has to do it. It's that they're all voluntary standards and everybody understands that. So people tend to work together pretty well. They, people do you know, obviously have some different interests and may want things to work a different way. But when that happens, you kind of get what's happened with Shaken, where there are two non-IP call authentication standards, and they both have pros and cons, but they don't—they're not mutually exclusive. You know, there's nothing that prevents some carriers from choosing to implement one and others from implementing another. So there's not a lot of arguments between the two, right? It's just trying to make both as, as good as you can get them. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I was imagining that you'd like have votes on how to do something, and everyone's voting in their self-interest, just like our government, which obviously works really smoothly. But it's but instead, when you get to a point of disagreement, you say, "Well, there are two different ways we could do this. Both of them have pros and cons. Let's publish the way you could do both." And that's how you resolve those conflicts. It sounds like. Well, certainly, when they are not mutually exclusive, when when you can, you know, have both exist, there are situations where you know there kind of does have to be a single answer to a question, and in that case, you, you kind of just have to come to a consensus. It, but it's really never been too much of a problem. You know, people people tend to want to get a working solution and and find a compromise. And I assume these, are, I mean, these are technical people rather than, I guess, people who are more like agenda driven, right? These are people who are engineers trying to find a technical solution to a problem. Is that fair? Yes, definitely. Yep. Okay, cool. So I'm glad that you were able to come up with uh, these three uh, standards that got or reports that got published. For any listeners who are not familiar, and probably most listeners are less familiar than you, how would you summarize the three reports that um, the Alex Working Group published in this area a few months ago? 
Yeah. So, so the first one, Addis 10,095, I believe the, the final title was Extending Stir Shaking Over TDM, um, is really about passing the attestation level in the ISOP signaling so that it can be perceived by the terminating service provider or potentially by an intermediate provider who would potentially create a new passport for that call, but set the attestation level based on the previous attestation level from, from the original passport. Now, I do have to, to, to say that, that that is changing quite a bit right now. In version two, there's been a lot of work on getting the equivalent of the full passport sent oh, downstream. So when there is just a shaken passport, there's no div, there's no RCD passports, there's no RCD information in shaken passports. It's just a regular run-of-the-mill shaken passport and certain requirements are met. It looks like it's going to be possible to get the passport information transmitted over ISAP signaling such that the exact passport can be reconstructed by an intermediate provider to then be sent downstream or if the terminating service provider is receiving the call via TDM by the terminating service provider. There will be quite a few caveats on when that can work. The size of the ISAP signaling has to be within certain limitations and everything, but there will be situations where that's going to be possible. That's impressive and surprising. I mean, is that using like unused you know, bits in the ISOP signaling messages, or I'm imagining that has to involve some software upgrades, at least on the ISOP switches. So it's using the uh, UUI parameter. So it's it's user to user intention, but we're going to, you know, overuse this, override it for that. The advantage of that is, you know, a lot of devices tend to just pass it because of that's intended use there. But of course, that means it won't work for calls that have an existing UUI. Now, you know, if call has an existing UUI, there's a high probability it's going to be too large anyways, the ISAP signaling to be able to add it somewhere else. So we're kind of not so much focused on that. And it's really just a minimal encoding of the information in the passport in that in the some clever techniques to make that encoding as small as possible so that it fits. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm impressed that they've come up with with some ideas there because I think we were you know concerned that given that the information in the passport seems like it's kind of important, otherwise it wouldn't be there, that the original solution, which didn't include it, presumably had some flaws, <laughs> given that the passport information is important. So it's impressive they've come up with a version two or are working on a version two that will address some of that. What about the the other two uh, reports, which I think were the ones that yep. you were more involved in? Yes. So Addis 10,096, the next one that is uh, generally referred to as out of band shaken. And that that is has been actually quite a few years in the making. But the final version that that is been, been set up is really very similar to the original versions, but it's it's all about transmitting that passport over the internet or some other medium out of the signaling, the ISAP signaling for the portions of the call that use ISAP. Some of the IPNNI documents, original out-of-band stuff actually had it go end-to-end, originating service fighter, determining service fighter. But with the, the published version, it is whoever converts the call from SIP to TDM is the one who publishes it into the, the call placement services. And then whoever converts the call back to SIP or the terminating service provider, if the terminating service provider is receiving it via TDM, uh, goes and retrieves that from the call placement service. And I'm saying call placement service, I should probably introduce that. That's a really a, a pretty simple system. It's just a temporary storage for those passports while the call is traversing, you know, ISIP signaling endpoints, which is, you know, very brief uh, period of time, a few seconds. 
So basically, as I understand it, the call placement service is a database in the cloud that identifies a call by its calling and call ID number. And the switches, the service providers can query that database and say, hey, give me the passport for this call. And obviously somebody, the first person to convert it to TDM would put that passport in that database in the first place. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and the, the, the kind of critical aspects about this approach versus the, the, the alternative approach of putting ISAP signaling is that you don't have the limitations on size, number of passports, things like that. So even with this version two, where we're, looks like we're going to be able to get the full passport transmitted downstream, that's only going to work if it's just a shaken passport. It has some nice benefits because in the ISAP signaling to make certain things easier, but it'll only work when it's a shaken passport where Adabane is trying to be a little bit more general purpose to work when there's, you know, shaken and div passports, any, any RPH, you know, anything, it doesn't really matter. Okay. I'm actually not familiar with the other types of passports you mentioned. I know you mentioned RCD, which is, I think, rich call data. And what are these other yes. types of information that might be passed with a call? I think these are forward-looking to an extent. Is that right? Yeah. For the most part, all the, the div passport has been deployed by, by a small number of service providers today. So the div passport is a passport for call forwarding scenarios. When, you know, let's say service provider A places the call to service provider B, they send their shaken passport to service provider B. Service provider B then forwards that call. Maybe it's, you know, no answer or, or whatever reason there's forwarding set up. That changes the destination number. So the original passport is no longer valid if you just send it downstream. So you add a div passport to kind of basically cryptographically secure that forwarding action. There's no attestation level on that div passport. It's just a way of saying, yes, the div doesn't match the shaken passport, but that's okay because I, I've forwarded. And there can be more than one div if there's more than one forwarding op operation happening. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't really thought through that scenario. I think I, I've seen it with a, with a client ticket where a call was forwarded and it was getting rejected. But yes, I hadn't, I hadn't thought through the idea that the stir shaken passport is not going to be valid after you do the forwarding, but you still want the information because it's not just afforded like that's important. Somebody ultimately is going to potentially answer the call and will want to know whether the call is from a spammer, regardless of whether the forwarding was legitimate. So, okay, that makes sense. Exactly. Okay. So when Austin Spreadbury and I talked, we both had you know some concerns about some of these ideas. I think within the context of everyone's trying their best to make this work, but it's complicated and it's hard to make it perfect. And some of the, the two main issues that he and I talked about were, firstly, the call placement servers themselves or the service where the spec doesn't really describe how that piece is going to work. I think it envisions a mesh of many CPSs and that all data is kind of simultaneously, synchronously maintained between them all, which obviously is a solvable problem, but it's a problem that you haven't attempted to solve yet. And then there was also a question about the timing of the calls and some potential security issues there, which we can come on to in a minute. But I'm curious about the CPS side of things. What's your expectation for how that piece will work once it actually gets implemented in real life? Yeah. So I think the spec went into most of the details. Really, the only thing that it didn't provide was the discovery mechanism. So every call placement service uh, that exists in the ecosystem, or I should say in the country's ecosystem, generally these are going to be deployed uh, kind of re nationally, these call placement services specific to a nation just for data sovereignty. Although technically they could exist beyond a country, a single country's borders, or they could be smaller and, and only serve a small set of providers. But so those call placement services, the way that they send passwords to the other to each other is actually defined. It's the same way that 
service providers send passports to the call placement service. What's not defined is the discovery mechanism. How do you know the other call placement services? And the reason that that wasn't defined in that document was really just that that document is kind of more of a standard for what the technical spec looks like as opposed to the more policy driven. So right now we're working on having that be formally adopted by the GA to have that role. And, and that role really is just a list of domains. It could be, as, at the end of the day, it could be as simple as a web page. It's a, a very static list. It's not going to change frequently. And we don't anticipate there's going to be a lot of them. In the interim, it's really not likely it's needed at all in, in reality, just because the, the number of people that are going to operate call placement services is likely to be extremely low. And in general, you know, these are likely to be the people who are contributing to the standards and, and kind of, you know, everybody knows each other in the industry when you get to this, this type of role. So we've already done testing with other people that are, are working on their call placement services. I, you know, I, if people aren't aware, we operate a call placement service today and, and we have a, a fairly large number of service providers using that. So it's, there certainly could be some improvement there with having the, the PAGA formally take on that responsibility of having a list of call placement services. But even then, it's, it's really not required as far as a rollout for out of band. And you're imagining, it sounds like, a handful of call placement services within the country. Yes. It, there's really not a lot of reason to run a call placement service. It's not like it's a, a particularly... Uh, profitable business, right? It's, it's, a, it's a commodity. Every call placement service effectively is the same because it doesn't matter which one you publish to, it ends up in all of them. It doesn't matter which one you retrieve, they all have the same data. So, you know, it's not like it's something that, that we anticipated is going to be highly, you know, a lot of people are going to be interested. We really suspect it's really going to be the vendors of authentication and verification software that are going to operate them um, yep. just because they're right, you know, in the space to do this, it's a pretty trivial add-on for them to do. So that's kind of what we're anticipating. Right. And there's no reason for anybody to launch a competitor because there's no revenue from doing it. It's just a piece of infrastructure that is communally accessed. Exactly. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. I assume the model here is that when a call is sent, when, a, when information about a call is inserted into the you know AECPS, that basically the updates to all of the other CPSs would have to happen before that call was allowed to progress through the network. Because otherwise you have like a race condition between the two ends of the call and the CPSs. Is that, is that how you would do it today or how you imagine it working when there's multiple CPSs? Yeah. So, so we actually did a lot of testing with this. So we, we kind of technically operate two CPSs. They appear to be one, but we have an East Coast CPS and a West Coast CPS, and they are completely independent. There's no shared infrastructure, you know, for redundancy reasons. And we settled on asynchronous replication after all the testing that we did. We could never create a call and have it publish it to the pass, publish the passport to a CPS and then traverse a TDM link and have that TDM traversal beat the calls, the passport's replication. Um, the replication is just happening so fast relative to the speed that we see with TDM links. They're just not that quick in terms of processing phone calls. We've never been able to see a problem. That being said, it is a very simple problem to solve in the event that that does become a problem. And that really is just you don't perform it asynchronously. You you block the call, right? You You want to publish that passport. You send that publish request, you wait until you get confirmation. And that CPS doesn't send that confirmation until it's replicated to the other CPSs. We don't anticipate that's going to be necessary given the uh, testing we've done, although things could change. And even if a very small percentage of calls 
don't get that passport, we're still in a, a much better position than we are today, right? Today, calls don't get a passport at all if it goes out of TDM link, if, if you're not using out of band. So if it solves the problem for 99% of calls, you know, that's, that's still a pretty good solution as opposed to nothing, of course. Yeah, and I think that mindset's very valuable in all of this because, you know, as engineers, you know, we're trained to, particularly telecoms engineers, we're trained to make things work 100% and to take care of every possible edge condition and things that could go wrong and make sure that stuff still always works 100% of the time. But in this world, you know, looking at the network as a whole and looking at the problem we're trying to solve, which is to reduce substantially the number of robocalls, ultimately, then... <laughs> You're right. Perfection isn't actually that critical. You know, making things much better is is very important, but perfection shouldn't slow down progress. I guess. Yeah, e exactly. And we say often in, in the standards groups, uh, don't try and boil the ocean. And and I think the standards groups, you know, in Addis and in the ITF, have really done a good job of of making incremental standards. Right. I mean, the original Shaken standard only covered non-forwarded, non-emergency calls. I mean, it, it was very limited in scope. I mean, forwarded calls for the most part, don't work at all in Shaken even today, although the standards have been finalized now, uh, a lot of, not many people have been adopted, uh, have adopted them. But it's waiting until you fix everything is, is it's like you said, it, that, that's not the goal here. The goal is to cut down the number of robocalls for subscribers and building a perfect solution over the next 30 years. It's not really the solution to, to this problem. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe that's the same answer that will apply to my, to my next question, which was another potential concern about the ability to basically spoof a call. Given that there is no tie between the signaling and the database entry for a particular call, in theory, if you had two calls at the same time, perhaps one from a bad actor using the same from and two numbers, they are both kind of covered, if you like, by the good data in the CPS, even if one of them is from a bad actor. I'm guessing you wouldn't view that as a particularly huge concern. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that needs to be watched out for. But, you know, the reality is it actually the same or a very similar problem exists with slightly different scope, but in, in regular shaken, right? I mean, in the, there really isn't anything tying a passport to a specific call, even when it's in the SIP signaling. Anyone along the path, if they see a SIP invite with a passport in it, going from, you know, number A to number B, they could just spin up a call from A to B and copy that passport. Um, now, with out of band, the number of service providers that are able to do that could potentially be expanded to not just those in the direct call path, but it's still, you know, kind of the same underlying issue of we don't have these persistent unique IDs for a call, so you really can't tie a passport to a call which, which kind of impacts both in-band and out-of-band shake. Yeah, interesting. It, I hadn't thought about the regular shaken scenario. In both cases, you would need to have knowledge that a call was in process in order to take advantage of it. And in the existing shaken scenario, you would also need to be seeing the signaling. In the other scenario, you wouldn't, but it's unclear how you would have knowledge of the call without seeing the signaling. So maybe the gap between those two scenarios isn't that huge. Yes, exactly. It certainly does widen it because you just need to know about the call as opposed to seeing the call. But yeah, how, how you know about that is, is, is a question. And, and there, were, there was quite a bit of, of work done in, in the advanced spec to basically create a way of identifying when that happens. So the 
the service provider that is publishing and retrieving these passports from the CPS, they're actually using shaken credentials. And those, those actions of publishing and retrieving are cryptographically secured. So when a, when a service provider publishes a passport to a CPS, they have to include an authentication token that says, I'm a service provider, I'm allowed to access this. And then when a service provider retrieves it, they can get that, they get that token. So they know who published it. And if a, a passport is replicated between CPSs, there's also an authentication token that CPSs use to communicate with each other that is sent to the person retrieving that passport as well. So you kind of get a full history of exactly where this call came from. You know, this service provider published it and sent it to a, you know, CPS A, CPS A sent it over to CPS B, and then I went and got it from CPS B. That's all traceable in a cryptographically secure way, kind of built, built into the standard. So, you know, certainly something to watch out for, but very easy to detect when it happens. Yeah, so if there was a bad actor who was trying to just get access to the CPS data directly by querying it for all the calls that are currently in process, then a probably that wouldn't be possible because there would be some kind of whitelist process to make sure that only clients of that CPS have access to it, but B, they would be able to be identified through traceback efforts. Yes, exactly. And and the, the, the beauty actually is it doesn't even necessarily require whitelisting or action on the CPS. The, the credentials used to authenticate to retrieve passports are actually your shaken credentials. You use your shaken certificate to create an authentication token. So if like, for example, our call placement service is just publicly available on the internet, but the only way you can make a publisher retrieve quest is by creating that authentication token with your certificate. So there's no registration or IP whitelist needed. It kind of just automatically works with the service providers in the ecosystem. If the, the STIPA or GA remove a service provider from the ecosystem, they're no longer able to create shaken passports. They're inherently no longer able to retrieve or publish things from the CPS. If a new service provider is added, they're automatically able to now publish and retrieve. So it's, it's kind of nice. We don't have any stateful user management system. It just works on shaken. That's very cool. Yeah, I like that. It's, it certainly makes the administration of the CPS a lot easier. And yeah, it gives a better user experience for anybody uh, newly added to the system. They don't have to, you know, wait or send requests to people and wait for support to add them into the into the CPS system. Absolutely, that's cool. Thank you, Alec, for kind of exploring, you know, all of that technical detail. I'm sure some of those listening will have glazed their their eyes will have glazed over a little, perhaps. But I found it interesting, and I'm sure the more technically minded will um, appreciate a better understanding of how that works. Stepping back a little and thinking more holistically about the industry, if you take out your crystal ball and gaze five years into the future, do you see robocalls as a substantially solved problem? And if so, what have we done? How have we managed to do that given all the complexities we see today? Yeah, you know, that's that's a hard one. I mean, it, it I think it's really going to come down to how aggressive regulators are. You know, there have been extensions for small service providers. There's extensions for TDM. And, and that really hurts everybody. It minimizes the effectiveness of Shaken. And so, you know, if, if the regulators follow through on the, the current, you know, small service provider mandate, when that goes into effect, if the TDM extension is, is no longer you know, valid, given that the, the requirements for, for removing that extension of have been met, at least in, in my mind, I would say they've been met. Then I think it, it'll pretty quickly start to improve robocalls in the event that regulators go after those service providers that are clearly originating the robocalls. What's, what Shaken really does is it makes it very easy to identify who is creating these robocalls. 
that's what it does. It doesn't stop them. You know, you have to, you have to say, okay, you're creating robocalls. We're going to remove you from the ecosystem. You know, if there are service fighters that get a cease and desist letter from the FCC, they say some response back from the FCC and the FCC just says, okay, but they're still signing calls. I don't know that we're going to make a, a significant dent. It really takes a willingness to kind of shut down these bad actors once they're identified. I saw a letter from the FCC recently. I'm not sure if this was shared by you or if I, if I found it directly on the FCC, but the FCC was sending a cease and desist letter to a particular originating service provider for originating robocalls. And they'd given them something like 48 hours to you know, stop or else they were going to pull them out of the network. It seemed like they were, were taking it very seriously. Yes, you know, I, I think those those letters are certainly strong and 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 it seems like it. I think it's it's really just gonna come a question of, you know, what happens the next time. Hopefully they, you know, they stop. I think there are a couple that were sent out last week, a couple cease and desist. You know, do the service providers stop doing what they were doing? And if they don't, what happens? Or is it really just a filing exercise of, oh, we'll stop, but you don't really do anything. And it, I don't think there's been enough time for us to know, but I think that's really gonna be the driving factor. Now, I will say. Even if the regulators don't kind of crack down on this as, as firmly as, as they could, there are still a significant benefit to Shaken. In, in really where I think this is going to happen, you know, when you create this, this passport, right, you're signing with your Shaken certificate, you're, you're stamping your name on it. And right now we do a lot of reputation call analytics based on the calling. I think as more calls are signed, we're going to be doing that reputation kind of analysis on the originating service provider who stamped that passport. And so you may, you know, make a bunch of robocalls as a service provider. You could use all different calling numbers, the same, you know, it doesn't really matter. When terminating service providers see a large percentage of robocalls or illegal calls, I should say, coming from you that you've signed with at station A or B, indicating you're the originating service provider, not C, but you're just a transit provider, there might block or mark your calls as spam going forward. So even if the regulators don't crack down, I, I do think that there is going to be quite a bit of improvement. But, you know, service providers are always very concerned about blocking calls. And so they're, you know, how willing people are going to be to just kind of say, you know, I'm going to start blocking calls from the service provider because they're, they're making a lot of bad calls or maybe mark them as spam. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a very interesting place we can get to if we start looking at the reputation of the service provider rather than the reputation of the number. I think that could could be pretty powerful and could create some interesting incentives for service providers. You, know, you see these ads for insurance companies that are only for good drivers, that kind of thing. You'll start having <laughs> service providers marketing themselves specifically to people who don't make high volumes of calls or perhaps the opposite. It'll be fascinating to see. Cool. Well, Alex, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I will publish some show notes with this podcast and I'll link in there to the three reports that we've mentioned, um, 10,095, 96, 97, I believe. Beyond that, where's the best place for people to learn more about this or to connect with you if they want to do that? Yeah. So uh, transnexus.com is our website. We have a section there, the Stir Shaking Information Hub. If you want to learn more about out of band or or really any of the, the shaking standards, uh, we try and put out some really informative white papers, not a lot of marketing fluff in there. So if, if you ever want to learn more about that, that's definitely a place. And then there's a contact form there. And I, I guess suppose you can put my email uh, with the notes as well if anyone wants to reach out to me directly. Cool. 
Well, thank you again for taking the time. For those listening, if you have enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or a review on Apple or Google or Spotify podcast, whatever it is you're using to listen to this. And be sure to join us again next time for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.